If I had to pick one snack to eat the rest of my life, it would be cereal. Doesn't matter if it's Kashi or Frosted Flakes, I love it. But I also know it's not the best for me, despite what it might say on the box. Like, around the time I got my first faculty job at Columbia, I remember eating some frosted mini-wheats while debugging some code. And a claim on the packaging caught my attention. It said, Clinically shown to improve kids' attentiveness by nearly 20%. Of course, this claim begs the question, improve relative to what? Eating another cereal or eating nothing at all? My younger, more skeptical self thought it was nonsense. But now that I have little kids, I'm not so sure. I'd be willing to pay more for anything that has even a slim chance at making my kids pay more attention. For the right person, this claim could make all the difference at the grocery store. Now, the company who makes Frosted Mini Wheats did eventually get charged by the Federal Trade Commission with deceptive advertising. However, a lot of these misleading advertising claims go unchecked. Welcome to How I Wrote This, where we go behind the scenes to demystify how great papers came to be. I'm Brett Gordon, professor of marketing at the Kellogg School of Management at Northwestern University and co-editor of the Journal of Marketing Research. Today I'm speaking with Jessica Fong at University of Michigan, Tong Guo at Duke, and Anita Rao at Georgetown. Their paper is titled, Debunking Misinformation About Consumer Products, Effects on Beliefs and Purchase Behavior, which is currently forthcoming at JMR. Perhaps you've seen a toothpaste ad that claimed their brand didn't contain any toxic ingredients. Of course, this implies that their competitors do use toxic ingredients, which for most major brands isn't true. This is precisely the type of misinformation the authors wanted to study. They wanted to understand whether misinformation in ads such as this could increase consumers' willingness to pay, and whether someone debunking that misinformation could counteract the false claims. But studying these questions with observational data would be tricky, and so the authors had to find a creative solution. Let's jump into my conversation with Jessica, Tong, and Anita for more. Thank you, Jessica, Tong, and Anita for joining me today. Can you guys just introduce yourselves for everyone? I'm Jessica Fong, and I'm at the University of Michigan Ross School of Business. Hi, uh, I'm Tong Guo. I'm at Duke University's Fuqua School of Business. Hi, I'm Anita Rao. I'm at Georgetown University McDonough School of Business. Great. Thank you so much. So this was a really fascinating paper to read, and it was probably one of the more papers I had actually more fun reading recently. Uh, and as you might imagine, I read a lot of papers. I'm really curious to know, how did the three of you land on this, land on working on this together, land on the idea and on the collaboration. Sure. So Jessica and I started discussing all the phenomena we observed at the early onset of COVID back in early 2020. Uh, we were quite concerned of many uh, types of misinformation going around, and particularly when uh, the situation was getting really bad back in China, but not yet here. So we started talking about the phenomena and the potential ways that we could help people out with correcting these misbeliefs and misinformation. And we kind of get to know each other in more details and find that we have very much interest in common. And then we decided to come up with this idea and work together as a team. 
I think adding on to that, so at the UTD Bass Conference, Tong and I, I think we were just talking about like all these crazy rumors about COVID and we're just having the thought like, does anyone actually believe this? And it turns out, yes. So then the natural question came out, came out of this was, well, what can we do about it? Yeah. And I think also Tong was giving a talk at Chicago booth. We had invited her for a seminar talk back when I was there. And she reached out to me and said, hey, you know, do you want to meet for a quick chat after the seminar? And, you know, a few weeks later, I think it's amazing that at seminars, you can get to know potential co-authors and form these really strong relationships. Yeah, I think that one interesting thing about those kinds of experiences to me is is it's hard in the moment to forecast a couple of years forward and realize that you had this kind of very critical uh, connection that was made mostly by chance, not not totally by chance, of course, but mostly by chance, it's serendipitous. And it, it always gives me an appreciation for why I, I try to push myself and others to go to these kinds of conferences, to go to any seminar, because you never know when you're going to make that random connection. But if you don't go, you know you're not going to make it, that's for sure. And these often can turn into these very beneficial relationships for everyone and really it helps you grow. So a really important element of the paper is that you use this conjoint experiment to try to measure the effects of misinformation and debunking on participants. And of course, conjoint has its advantages. You know, Experimental manipulation is really good, really important. But it also has some some disadvantages too. You know, maybe realism would be maybe the first kind of concern people generally bring up. So I'm curious, did you consider other data sources before you dove into the conjoint element? Absolutely, right? So initially, I think we were thinking deeply about running a field experiment and also potentially using observational data. But two challenges kept coming back to us. So one was with field experiments, given that we were studying misinformation and debunking it, we couldn't figure out a way once we spread this misinformation, how to actually tell people that this was just an experiment and you should, even if we were able to reach them, I think it would be hard to convince them and tell them that this was, beliefs could already have formed, um, you know, wrongly. And that's something first, the IRB probably wouldn't have given us approval for. And second, I think we were just worried that there would be spillovers where people might share these kinds of ads in our experiment. And this would just create a spillover effect in the wrong dimension. So that was one concern we had. And of course, as researchers, our goal was to debunk misinformation. So that was one. And the second was with observational data, it's hard to find this random variation of when a firm is saying these things, when they are debunking these things. And it's not easy, right? So it's not in a controlled setting. So a firm is probably doing a bunch of other things too. Most of these were entrants. And entrants, when they come in, they are making these claims. And so that's, it comes with other things like other marketing efforts they're putting, spending a lot of advertising dollars as well. So a lot of confounds that we didn't want to potentially confound our design. Okay. So once you decided that a conjoint was the way to go, you couldn't use a field experiment, you couldn't use observational data. So what was that early design like? Yeah. So we actually started off with something really machine learning oriented in the sense that we did run an experiment to measure people's choices with some experimental manipulation. However, didn't start off with measuring their beliefs directly simply because we didn't even start from that way. We were more from a revealed preference point of view. 
But we get some early feedback when we were working on the first round of results and making predictions from choice data for to recover beliefs. Many of these early feedbacks we get from brown bags and chatting with people at other conferences was like, oh, it might be challenging to fully recover beliefs from data from choice data only. We tried all kinds of heavy lifting machine learning tools, and we also searched through literature. The reality is, indeed, we didn't do a great job of recovering beliefs from data for a very legitimate reason. That's simply because there are so much stuff missing from their choices, measuring the choices alone. Therefore, we made a lot of changes later on, introducing another waves of surveys, allowing for measuring both the prior as well as posterior beliefs, and completely gave up on trying to recover beliefs based on demographics, based on choices, and based on some kind of matching technique. I've always found it hard to change course, especially methodologically, in a project to kind of to say that what I was trying for a little while isn't going to work anymore or isn't going to work at all. Uh, was that a hard decision for the group? I guess different people may have a different take on it. For myself, to be honest, I still feel tempted to try these new tools. However, at the same time, the whole study was motivated and initiated in a question-driven way instead of a model-driven way. Therefore, I think it's also important, and I agree with all my team, my co-authors, that we just choose whichever tool that is most appropriate for our question. And I'm glad we tried all the new tools and we come up with a pretty good reason why these tools may not be as appropriate as some of the more classic tools that we are using in the current version of the paper. Yeah, and I think I do agree that there's this element of sunk cost where we have invested a lot of time and energy and coding skills into this machine learning aspect. But I also think at the same time, where uh, co-authors can actually help and having a team sometimes is useful to just bounce back ideas and says, hey, you know, big picture, let's keep the big picture in mind. Let's not go down this route anymore. And I think like separating the beliefs and preferences was something we strongly felt and the literature tells that it's impossible to do, right, without actually asking for beliefs. So the Mansky paper was something which was very influential in our thinking. And we said, let's actually ask people for beliefs. And, you know, we'll talk about that later, probably. But this was an expensive endeavor, right? But I, I think all of us strongly felt that let's do this. And maybe if the machine learning one is correlated to what we end up finding, that could be another ad. But I think as uh, Tong was saying, that was, we probably found that it was not I would also like to add to what we've tried in the machine learning part. It requires us, us not only to build up all the algorithmic design, like pipelines for prediction, but also to streamline our thoughts of what really should go into this prediction task. And that thought experiment itself is quite useful for us to figure out what would be the contributing factors to potential changes in your beliefs. So that's how we end up with what we have today. So I think Tong makes a really great point here in that even though this machine learning step didn't make it into the final paper, all those hours we spent talking about it really helped us think more deeply about these ideas. And I think even though the final part didn't make it to the paper, like some elements of it did through these conversations that we had. It was sort of a, it was a necessary struggle uh, 
of sorts uh, that you had to go through to arrive at the more evolved point that you that you landed on of why the conjoint was kind of necessary, the problems that it was solving, and the insufficiencies with the earlier methods. So I, I think that makes a lot of sense, and I feel like a lot of people would, would agree with that very much so in their own in their own experiences. So you've got this conceptual design, and we, we'll talk about that more soon. Clearly, with any kind of conjoint, you need some actual stimuli. You need some actual products. You need some actual ads. And you end up running these con this conjoint design on three categories, in fact. So, Jessica, I'm wondering, can you tell us how you landed on those three categories? Yeah, this picking the categories actually took a lot of time. I remember going back and forth on this for weeks and weeks. I spent hours down these misinformation internet rabbit holes and found some crazy theories. So some are more reasonable. Like uh, one thing we had considered was um, like parabens. Uh, there's a lot of misinformation around those. There's misinformation around RBST hormone in milk. But some of the crazier ones, in my opinion, were like 5G radiation is really bad for you. And there's companies out there selling like hats that can block this radiation. Um, so ultimately, there were three criteria that we needed to fulfill for the categories. Basically, they had to be these categories where there is misinformation prevalent. There is a firm in this category that is spreading misinformation. And there's also debunking messages about these ingredients from competing firms from the media and from regulators. Yeah, I think another thing we, I remember talking about the milk and this RBST growth hormone that technically makes no difference to the milk. It's not shown to have any effect on people. And in fact, on those products, you see that written. I think one challenge with using that was we, because we wanted to be incentive compatible, there was no way we could actually deliver this to people being milk and it had to be refrigerated. I think we looked at cheese as well, having some of these claims. That also was hard to deliver to people if they won the lottery. Yeah, I think Jessica's point was, I don't think there were any companies debunking the this growth hormone actively on their websites. Like a competitor was not saying, no, that doesn't make any sense. But for these other categories, which we do use, toothpaste, deodorant, and nutrition shake, and like fluoride, aluminum, and GMOs, we had companies actively debunking this. Another aspect to the choice of product category, and particularly the brand, is that we would like to also see if there are existing brands who provide both the controversial ingredient as well as the product comes with ingredient-free product design. So for these three product categories we end up with, we find brands who sell, for example, both fluoride and fluoride-free toothpaste then that gives us some real-world validity, face validity of, say, the price difference across fluoride and fluoride-free toothpaste would be a good data for us to validate our estimate coming from the conjoint analysis. And we indeed show our analysis produces very reasonable estimate that's in close proximity to what we observe in reality from these product categories. Uh, so in that first experiment, where the focus was really on the main question of does misinformation and debunking impact consumers' willingness to pay for these items? Yeah, so the 
control group just saw a regular ad and then the treatment group saw misinformation by the focal company spreading misinformation. And then once consumers, once respondents saw this, they would then also see a debunking message or there would be a control message, which was just some neutral fun fact about the category. And the debunking was across three sources. And uh, the reason we wanted these three sources is we thought that the credibility of each source would be different. So if a competitor says something, people might be more skeptical. If the media says something, they might be more receptive. And if a regulator says something, they might be more, um, you know, trust. Uh, that's, that would probably be the most trustworthy source. Although we were not sure about that, given the COVID dynamics and uh, people not really trusting regulators. So we were not sure which way that would go. So that, I think, was how our uh, design was. Another uh, factor here was how should we showcase the ad? I think we ended up using, uh, what was it? Was it a Twitter style? Or I think that we thought, we debated a bit about Facebook style. Then, you know, that was something which uh, we decided not to go down that route because there was other things, other drama going on with Facebook. So I think we stuck with the Twitter kind of feature. So we had to create that as well. So for those short Twitter messages, due to the space limit, we have to come up with our shortened version of a debunking message and misinformation message, for example. However, for every message, we would include a link to the real original source of information. So that means we did have this trade-offs between whether you completely go with an exper experimental design of the message or you stay real. At the same time, the downside is if you stay with real thing, then these messages won't be exactly the same across treated and control conditions. Therefore, we did a little bit of a pilot, pre-pilot kind of concept testing and all that, also internally more a lot of discussion, and we end up going with prioritize a real one. So every message includes that real link, and every participant can click on the real link to go to, let's say, the original company's website, including all the conversation sending the, the, this message, or the regulator's website that includes all the educational materials for consumers. So that is one part of the study de design that I like really a lot. And we did also get a lot of feedback throughout these seminars and conference discussions where other researchers who uh, used to stay with a very lab kind of environment design, they were pretty surprised. How did you end up finding these real-world stimuli? And you end up doing stimuli in a more real way than what they would prefer doing. So that also triggers a lot of intellectual conversation. This was the first survey experiment I've ever done. So there was a pretty steep learning curve in figuring out, like, how do we design these questions? How do we actually launch this on Prolific? How can we actually send these products to people? And a big hurdle was we had to keep the participant data anonymous so we couldn't collect like addresses or names or e email addresses. So this took a lot of time to figure out how to do. And what I didn't fully appreciate before doing this kind of experiment is like how much thought goes into all these little details like we were talking about, how should we show the ads? Should it be on Twitter or Facebook? Like even just designing that stimuli, there's so many decision points that require a lot of thought and a lot of care 
in designing. So I imagine then that Anita was a very good source of support and experience in this regard and maybe had a better sense of what you guys were getting into than, than the two of you, perhaps. Exactly. I remember we pulled out a lot of the original draft of surveys as well as the draft of conjoint design. And then we talked to Anita and she pointed to, oh, actually, there are some potential improvement this way. Or why don't we look at my paper using the conjoint to answer a different question and we can get some maybe more efficient solution to the design, conjoint design. So there were also a lot of learning that sense for, for me throughout the process. So we implemented the survey data collection through Prolific. And we to continue on the study design question, so we figured out one way to make it incentive compatible by inviting prolific survey participant to create their own anonymous Amazon wishlist. So that wishlist would be anonymous. We won't be able to see their personal information or address. However, after they send us their wishlist link, we would be able to send, uh, include, including the product that they were chosen based on the lottery result, we would be able to make the purchase and ship the product to people. So that's one way to make it incentive compatible, that people do get the real product they chose in the, in the study design. Right. I think one thing I'll add on the design is we want to make sure the only one, one respondent takes one survey. We had three product categories. We didn't want the same respondent taking, you know, one survey for aluminum and deodorants, come back and do the same one for toothpaste. So although there were different categories, the questions were similar. So we didn't want that same user doing those three. So we had to either create like a a big kind of, I don't know, like a monster or some some survey which would handle all of this. And that would probably be crazy because then we would have to repeat all questions. All of our questions were category specific. So one decision we had to take was, Let's do this sequentially so that once a survey is complete, only then we launch the other one and we can, in Prolific gives us this ability to exclude respondents who had taken a particular survey. So that was a nice feature that we used and I think was helpful. I think, yeah, this study was not that many people, but once we go to the belief studies, I think we had a lot of people and thankfully on Prolific we had access to that. I remember Tong looking and saying, hey, we have, I think, like 20,000, 30,000 people in our potential pool, so we're good to run this. And that was a big criteria as well. So you bring up the belief study. So let's let's talk about that, actually. This was the second set of experiments. The conjoint design was very similar, except that you also want to explore the heterogeneity in the debunking effects as a function of respondents' beliefs about toxicity of the ingredients. And you measured these beliefs both before and after the choice questions. This was super cool because you found that people who had priors that some ingredients weren't harmful, such as aluminum, in fact, they had their willingness to pay decreased quite substantially after they were exposed to misinformation. And then the debunking actually helped correct those misbeliefs. How did you arrive at the decision to run this belief study? The belief study, if I recall correctly, we didn't plan on doing that when we were first talking about the idea for the paper. We ran the first study and we realized that we really do need beliefs to better understand what was going on. So for example, if we don't see any effective debunking, is it because 
the debunking was not effective? Or is it because people just had the correct beliefs in the first place and therefore didn't really need to be debunked? So in the second study, we, we ran this with that motivation, like we just needed to observe beliefs. And we did this originally with just the aluminum study in the first early versions of the paper. Right. And I think one of the key features there was we wanted to measure beliefs with aluminum up front, but then we also didn't want it to treat people. If we only ask questions about aluminum, people would, you know, aluminum would be prime on their mind. And then the way they would answer the conjoint, they would, either their willingness to pay would go up or down because of that question. So that was something we were very concerned about. And I think what we ended up doing is we asked this question about beliefs for every attribute in the conjoint. So it increased the length of the survey, but I think was an important decoy in some sense. So we asked them, what are your beliefs about these brands? What are your beliefs about, what was it? I think for aluminum, it was this fragrance, I think was other attributes. You know, how strongly do you think something that says it is fragrant is likely to be toxic or not toxic? Those are questions that we did so that people are not kind of thinking only about the ingredient in the survey. Another aspect of the belief survey was that uh, in survey one, we have two by four, meaning you would need probably only a sufficient sample for eight different cells. However, in belief survey, in order to have a better characterization of the distribution of the prior belief, we allow for five different prior belief categories. So that makes it five by two by four for each of the product category. That hugely increases the sample requirement in order to get enough of statistical power. That's why in addition to being able to start off sequentially, we also want to take it one at a time to make sure we have at least enough data for one product category before we move on to another product category. And it turns out from measuring prior beliefs, although we didn't plan out that way, but it turns out to be very nice that for these three product categories, their prior belief shows up having very different distribution. So I recall for fluoride, for example, most of the participants start off believing fluoride is beneficial, so it's good. On the other hand, for aluminum, most of the participants would consider it as harmful. So including these three product categories actually allows us to capture a very different distribution of prior beliefs to start with. Okay, great. So now you have experiment one, and then you have the follow-up, the belief study, and you have a lot more data as a result of that. So then you're getting ready to submit. So how did you package it all together? How did you land on the initial positioning of here's why this is important? And then how did you decide what made it into the paper versus what didn't? The first working paper draft we had we had also included a theory model, like a toy theory model that was very simple, kind of just trying to show how people would update their beliefs under rational Bayesian updating and under confirmation bias. And we had originally thought about trying to say something about using this data to test like how people actually update their beliefs. So the, the prior framing is more of a theory testing paper but as you can see now, that model has been moved to the appendix. We still talk about the model in the main paper, but more informally, like in words, instead of having 
the equations and the actual model in the main paper. So the published version, the framing is more different. It is more about policy implications rather than this theory testing. So you landed on a positioning and, and, uh, and what to include. What was the first submission experience like? Where did you go and what happened? So we first submitted it to marketing science. Then that was rejected there. And one of the main pieces of feedback was that we're not able to test the theory as well as we would like. Uh, like the empirics are not ideal for testing this theory, which was fair. And so after this, this round, we ended up changing the framing, moving the theory into the appendix, and then we submitted to JMR. And in addition to the review feedback we get from first initial submission, it also helps us to think back to day one, where we started off. Then I remember we actually discussed, oh, why is this question interesting? Why was the question interesting to all of us when we started thinking of working on this type of issue? What is the main contribution we aim to make? And then we're kind of reminded that we were actually taking a more policy-oriented perspective instead of a theory-building or theory-developing kind of perspective. So that's also useful for us to really think back to day one, to where we get our initial idea and as a way to choose the right positioning. And indeed, from our later experience with later rounds of revisions, that repositioning seems to make a lot of sense. And all the reviewer, uh, reviewers are pretty aligned with what we claim we are contributing. So most of the later comments per my memory was mostly about how to highlight or how to bring out your contribution in a more uh, evident way. So for example, they, there were a lot of suggestions around how to improve or enrich your simulation based on all these estimates and choice data that we gathered from the, the survey. And now the simulation is actually a very important part of the paper. Do you remember what it was like when it got accepted? Did you celebrate it all? That's a great question, though, I think, Brett. I don't know how often <laughs> co-authors or authors celebrate in our field, right? Like at the end of the day, it just feels like a big relief that this is done. And so I think, I think we forget to pat ourselves on the back. And I think we should do more of that. I was going to say the same thing. I don't think I've really ever celebrated an acceptance. It always feels so anticlimactic. Like before, like when you submit the paper, it's like, oh, we'll be so happy once it gets in. And once it does, it's like, okay, great. And then you kind of move on. I totally understand that. I was thinking of that same description as well, that the surprise part is sort of going from a major revision to a minor revision, because you know that once you get to the minor revision, the chances that you get rejected of that are small. So that's kind of the time to celebrate. But it's still nice when the paper is accepted. It's a pretty good excuse to celebrate getting a publication. So I think it's important to recognize that. So I'm curious then, with the benefit of the hindsight, given kind of the varied tasks and the path that you took on this project, what advice would you give yourself if you had just been starting out on it? I think the advice that I would give myself is that things take a lot longer than you would expect. And I've talked about this earlier where it seems very simple to design this, this two by four survey design 
we already had the ads pre-made. We didn't have to make it ourselves. But even with all these things working for us, uh, it still takes a lot of time. And so I, I guess the advice would be to adjust expectations. Not that we were slow, but I think uh, it was just that I had expected things to be a lot easier than they actually would be. To me, like the biggest thing was like, pick a question that you are passionate about. I think Tong brought this up earlier that fundamentally going back to day one and saying, hey, the reason we started on this project was because we wanted to study the impact of misinformation and the impact of debunking on people and remembering that and that kind of, that, that fire will take you through this long journey. I think that's important to keep in mind. And yeah, this is not easy, but, you know, like find co-authors who you like working with. And even when there's disagreements, you're willing to hear that and respect that disagreement. I think those were two big things for me. And with that, I think that's a perfect piece of advice to end on, in fact. So Tong, Jessica, Anita, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you. That was Jessica Fong, Tong Guo, and Anita Rao talking about their paper, Debunking Misinformation About Consumer Products, Effects on Beliefs and Purchase Behavior, forthcoming at JMR. This episode was produced by me, Brett Gordon, and if you like the way we sound and the music, you should thank our producer, Andrew Merriweather. We'll have another episode of How I Wrote This For You next month. To listen, subscribe to the JMR newsletter, email us at hiwtpod at gmail.com if you don't know how, or follow us in your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening and talk to you next month.